God, you are so awesome, so unbelievably awesome to us. Father, your goodness has no measure. There's nothing that we can compare you to. Uh, Father, what we, what we need most is a fresh encounter with you today. And Father, you are granting that even now. Lord, you inhabit praise. You promised that. That's a hard concept for us to understand, but God, we feel your presence here today. Lord, we need, we need to be refreshed and we need to be renewed. We need to be encouraged. Lord, we need, we need our faith to be strengthened, deepened, made more secure, made more firm. We need, we need our confidence and our hope built up. Lord, we need strength. We need strength to endure, strength to be faithful, strength to face down temptation. All these things, knowing that you are better you are worth it. We need the confidence in you that frees us from desire for lesser things. It gives us, gives us the courage and boldness to say what we ought to say about you, to stand up for what we believe is true of you, to represent you well. We need all of this. Lord, we need you. Lord, for the people in this room, my prayer is this. My prayer is that we would faithfully endure Till Jesus comes. And as we endure, not fearfully, fearfully, cowardly, secretly, privately, but triumphantly, Lord, that we would give off Christ everywhere. We would give off the aroma of Christ, the coming King, for we serve the King. Our victory is certain. Our hope is secure. And that's all because of, it's all because of Jesus. So, Father, thank you for your great love for us. May we sense it. May we know it. May we rest in it. May we endure because of it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may or may not be aware of the seismic shift that's happening in our culture when it comes to religion. You probably are aware of it in microcosms, individual conversations, family members, relatives, maybe some stories that you hear here and there. You've probably heard the term with increasing frequency, deconstruction when it comes to faith, deconversion even when it comes to people turning from faith. But it wouldn't be a stretch for me to say that we are now in an epidemic of faith in America, of the which, of the sort of which, we honestly have never seen in American religious culture. We live in unprecedented times, and there's an unprecedented shift away from the church away from the scriptures, away from God, away from Christ. Today, one quarter of Americans, one quarter, think about that in just raw terms when you're standing in line at the grocery store or when you're bowling with your friends or you're sitting in your office or riding in your car. One in four Americans now claim their religious affiliation to be none. The largest religious group in America now are atheists. The single largest religious group, none. And roughly eight in ten of those, again, think of the numbers. Eight in ten of those who claim to be none once claimed to be Christian. Consider that. Eighty percent of them once claimed to be believers in something. They were at one time in a faith community. They were at one time church members. They once claimed Christianity. Eighty percent of those nuns. 
In a book honestly titled Exodus, Why Americans Are Leaving Religion and Why They're Unlikely to Come Back, researchers at the Public Religion Research Institute concluded that nearly 40% of young adults age 18 to 29 are religiously unaffiliated. 40%. That's nearly four times as likely among young adults as it was a generation ago. I don't want to embarrass you or anything, but just for the point of illustration, if you're in this room this morning and you're between the ages of 18 and 29, will you stand just for a moment? Besides John Adams, everybody else? 18 and 29. Consider 40% of your peers now are unbelievers. You guys can be seated. Thank you. And consider this just for a moment. When we talk about deconversion, we're talking about the challenge of people, of course, leaving the faith. Pew Research Forum says that for every one person who comes to Christ, four people are abandoning the faith. For every one that comes in, four are going out. You may remember over here in this corner, this brightly lit number one, every time someone makes a profession of faith and is baptized, due to the efforts of folks in this room, we light a bulb. We light another bulb of another one coming into the kingdom and marking that transition in their life through baptism. We light that bulb. Imagine if we turned off a bulb in the room, or four of them, every time someone exits, or every time four people exit. Here's a staggering number from the same research institution. By the year 2050, there'll be 35 million young people who grew up in Christian homes, who once claimed to be Christian, who will say they're no longer Christian by the year 2050. 35 million. The largest mission field in the United States by the year 2050 will be people who used to be in church or whose families are. And as far as we can tell, this is the single largest generational loss of souls in the history of people in the United States. Who are these deconverts? This comes from a book called The Anatomy of Deconversion, Keys to a Lifelong Faith in a Culture that's Abandoning Christianity. The author of the book says this, deconverts meet these four criteria. They once made a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ. At one time, they said they'd made a decision. Two, they had to have been a member of of an evangelical church or a fundamentalist church. So we're not talking about people who belong to cult groups or what we would say are loosely or nominal or even non-Christian organizations. Number three, they have to have defected both institutionally and ideologically from Christianity. In other words, they no longer accept that the fundamental beliefs are true and they no longer attend a church. And now, number four, to meet this criteria, they have to identify as an unbeliever, which means they no longer affirm the claim that Christianity is true. Folks, this is happening all around us. And why am I telling you this? Well, the book of Hebrews speaks like an arrow in the center of a target to this issue. Because the huge themes of Hebrews are these, though though it's set in a different time and it's addressing a different cultural milieu and a different sort of scenario of people, the challenge is still the same. That for every person who once makes a claim to follow Christ, to recognize and to keep recognizing day after day after day that Jesus is better. He's better than the old life. He's better than the old culture that you came from. He's better than the old morals and values you once lived by. He's better than the old systems, the old ways of thinking. 
He's better. And he's worth it. I summarize the book of Hebrews. You say, well, why did it take you, I don't know, 40 some odd messages to get there? With these two statements, Jesus is worth it, so don't quit. He's worth it, so don't quit. In the face of apostasy, turning away from Christ altogether, rejecting the faith, in the challenge intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, morally, to go back to whatever you once were, to go where the culture is going, the best thing that we can do for one another is to keep reminding ourselves of the greatness of God in Christ. How good is God in Christ? How vast is His worth? How incomparable is He to anything else? So we don't quit. So there's nothing in all this world that can make us let go. I want to read to you today from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man can do to me. Now how does that fit in the context of deconstruction, breaking off and breaking down the faith until there's very little of value left to the point of deconversion? How does that fit with the idea of perseverance and staying in the course and the value of God in Christ and never abandoning it, never letting it go? Well, consider Hebrews chapter 13 now as a sort of epilogue. And I apologize a bit for those of you who may be here for the first time or hearing anything from Hebrews for the first time because you'll wonder, an epilogue to what? An epilogue to an ongoing challenge, an ongoing call to remain faithful to Christ. All of Hebrews has been leading up to this moment, and now this sort of puts on some details at the end, some, some final statements. Here are the things we've considered so far. The exceeding worth of Christ. I mean, that's been fundamental from the very beginning. The exceeding worth of Christ has been established. Think of a couple of these pillar verses we've looked at. Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And again, this may be repetitive to you who know this already, but it's something we need to remind ourselves of again and again and again. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the shaper of all that is, the one who not only designed and created, the one who sustains and keeps together, the one who ultimately will judge all things, this God made a provision for people like me and you to know him, love him, and enjoy him forever. That's grace. And there is but one provision for that. Think about that in light of even the short video that you watched about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. A reminder to Christians today because this conviction seems to be slipping away more and more, year after year after year. A fundamental conviction of the faith that we once used to hold almost universally, now it's slipping through our grasp. There is no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ. That is a great impetus for us to be generous with our giving, to be sacrificial with our lives, to answer the call and go. Because this means, this great salvation, the way that God has provided, is a solitary way. 
full of grace, full of goodness, but only through Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect it? Remember Moses' assessment of the worth of Christ? This is one of my favorite verses. It's a little snapshot out of the book of Hebrews, but it's one of my favorites. Remember what Moses said when he considered the value of things? I mean, remember Moses could have had it all. He's a son of the most important, most powerful, wealthiest king on the planet, Pharaoh of Egypt. Son of the king. And he says this in Hebrews eleven twenty six: By faith, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Now, I don't want you to miss that, and I preached this verse already, so I won't repeat the message. But consider what he said for a moment. Don't miss the language, because every word's critical. When Moses was looking at what his life was going to be about, and what he was going to live for and be willing to die for, consider again what he said. All the wealth of Egypt cannot compare to the wealth of Christ. No, that's not what he said. All the wealth of Egypt cannot compare to the reproach of Christ. I would rather suffer for the sake of God and godliness. I would rather suffer and be part of and be with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures, he said, of sin for a season. How did he do this? Because he knew that God is incomparable. And one day the fullness, the weightiness of the worth of God in Christ will be revealed. We will see him face to face. We'll see his glory. We'll enjoy him forever. This is the exceeding worth of Christ. Hebrews has established this for us again and again. Jesus Christ, our only high priest to intercede for us before the Father, the one who is our go-between. Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice acceptable to a holy God, for he alone is perfect. Jesus Christ, our sole mediator, Christ and Christ alone. And now after establishing the worth of Christ, all the warning passages of Hebrews have been given. And there are many. And we've broken them down bit by bit and piece by piece. Warning passages, the means by which God keeps us faithful. The means by which God causes us to persevere. He warns us. He tells us. Warning passages like this, Hebrews 2.1. We must pay careful attention so, to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. Keep listening and hearing God speak. I need to know. I want to stay connected. I want to be tethered. Because our natural bent is to drift, not toward God, but from God. So we're always zoned in, locked in. God, teach me. God, show me. God, God keep me. Hebrews 3, 6, we're God's house, he said. We're the family of God. We're his people. We're what God is about. If we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. If we hold it, hold on to this. Hebrews 3, 14, we've come to share in Christ. If we hold firmly to the end, our conviction. How do I know that I truly believe in him and that I truly belong to him? That I hold firm to the end. Perseverance is the mark of authentic faith. The analogy that the author of Hebrews gives us in Hebrews chapter 6, the, this visual, this image is so powerful. Hebrews 6, 7, and 8. He said, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those to whom it is formed, receives the blessing of God. This is the normal and natural progression of salvation. It's akin to the parable of the sower and the seed. A seed planted, the seed is the truth, the word of God, and God waters it, causes it to grow. When it grows and produces fruit, God is glorified. This is it. This is the aim, that in that hard soil of this world, God plants the seed of the truth of the gospel by faith received, believed in, lived in, grown up into fruitfulness. We say that is the intent of God. 
But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it'll be burned. He says, look at your life. Does your life give evidence of one transformed by Christ? Is the new life sprouting up in us? Is it growing up in us? Because there's judgment for those for whom it's not. One of the statements I made in this series is that you can't separate conversion from discipleship. That's not a new idea to me. But if we rightly understand biblical conversion, coming to Christ and being saved, then we also understand this implication. Only disciples are converts. We can't make one without the other. We can't say, well, I'm a follower of Christ, or I'm a believer in Christ. I'm just not a disciple of Christ. There's no such thing. Only disciples are converts, those who grow up and show fruit. Or consider these warning passages, Hebrews 10, 26 and following. talks about those who would trample underfoot the Son of God. Or Hebrews 12, verse 25 and following. For those who will hear the message and then refuse it. All these dire warning passages have been issued. So now, the worth of Christ established, the warnings against ignoring Christ. So what remains for those who are in Christ? Waiting. Waiting with perseverance until he returns. But this waiting is not, is not passive. God didn't call us into asceticism or monastic living. He didn't call us to build up walls all around us so that the world may no longer encroach upon us. He didn't call us to go underground, to go silent, to go covert, to go private. In fact, the analogies in Scripture are quite the opposite. Jesus made a proclamation about the church that says the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. He says the the walls that hell has around its kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, cannot withstand the assault of the kingdom of light, not vice versa. We ought to be the advancing kingdom, not the retreating one, not the hidden one. So we wait with perseverance. Hebrews 3.12 says, hold fast to the end. Hebrews 10.36 says, You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You hold fast, you endure, and then one day you will receive. Remember Abraham? The analogy of Abraham in Hebrews? Because he was looking for a city with true foundations whose author and builder is God. And think of what Abraham was given. The land, the promise, the people, the nation, the seed, the blessing, all those things. What mattered most? What God had in store for him forever. He's longing for this. And I was reading some of this, this book about deconversion, and, and I was also listening to, an art, uh, listening to an interview of the author, and the interviewer challenged him, as you do this research and as you have conversations and as you conducted interviews, what did you find were the main reasons that people were falling away from, from the church um, giving up on their faith, announcing that they no longer believed, etc. He summarized them with these three primary reasons. First one was moral. Their own moral values began to collide with the moral values they saw all around them, or their own personal moral practices began to conflict with the moral practices they'd been taught or they'd grown up around. Does that surprise you? Does that surprise you that one of the first steps to deconversion is moral spiritual? Then we begin to compromise things we know to be true, and we begin to violate our own conscience, when we begin to walk in step with the, with the norms of culture, not in step with the commands of Christ, it's nearly inevitable. 
So the second reason was typically emotional, emotional slash relational. Somewhere along the way, somebody had hurt them or hurt their feelings. And this is kind of interesting because we hear this a lot and we like to, I think sometimes we like to put blame on ourselves or blame on others for kind of blowing it with people. Well, you're the reason why people don't want to come to church anymore. Well, when you talk to people like that, it's no wonder they don't want to believe. And well, you know, that neighbor, that's why they don't believe. That actually turns out to be a rather minor factor. You know what a larger factor is? You know where the emotional relational breakdown happens more often? It happens with their perceived disappointment, not with you or even with me or even with the church, though those things aren't insignificant. They're not the most significant. It's their perceived sense of disappointment and letdown with, you ready for this? God. God let them down. Now, why do you suppose people think God let them down? Is it possible that they grew up in a generation of church life that didn't preach the God of the Bible, that painted God as much less than he is, that painted God as some sort of servant, steward, valet, some sort of wish granter, some sort of happy maker, party planner, life coach, some sort of God who's just there to enhance your life, some sort of God that's the means to gain all the things you would want whether or not God was real. Whether he was true or not, these are the things I want with my life. And if God is the means to get them, then so be it. And the church, both intentionally and unintentionally, both consciously and subconsciously, has conveyed God like that. Here are all the things that you want. You want to be happy and successful and prosperous. You want to feel good about yourself and your world. You want your marriage to succeed and your business to boom. You want your kids to act right and succeed in life and all these things. You know what? God will give you those things. But we look at the chorus of voices in a book like Hebrews, and we see men like Moses deciding to follow God, releasing those things. Now I'll follow God and be on the run. Now I'll follow God and be poor. Now I'll follow God and be at odds with the most powerful people on the planet. Now I'll follow God in spite of. The third reason was intellectual. People coming to the point where they say, I just can't believe that to be true anymore. I don't think those things are correct. I don't think those things are right. Now, my own personal editorial is this, and this is mine. I really believe that moral comes first. That sense of desire to live independently and to pursue whatever I want, to do whatever my flesh desires, to go wherever my lusts want to take me, to do the things that make me, I think, happy. I think that comes first. I think often the emotional part is a smokescreen particularly when it comes to other people. That's the sort of a convenient out sometimes, the sort of thing that people affirm, oh, I understand. I understand people can be terrible. Churches can be hard. And I don't know if you've ever recognized this, but if you look around in here, the people in this room are pretty much just regular people, okay? You're in a room full of, you're in a room full of people who still sin. We still battle that sin nature. Um, we're still taking off the old and putting on the new. We're still waiting for that moment of final and complete sanctification and glorification. I mean, this is who we are. And this idea of, of disappointment with God, it had me ans- asking this question as I read the book and thought through some of the interview. What sort of Christianity did people deconvert from? What sort of Christianity are they actually deconstructing Now, again, the author in the book, in his interviews, found that most people, the majority of them, came from churches that were at one of these two ends of the church spectrum, okay? On one end, 
is the liberal end of the church spectrum. People who, in their churches over the last 10, 20, 34 years, had already moved off the authority of Scripture, had already moved off the inspiration of Scripture, had already moved off some of the plain teachings of Scripture, morally, doctrinally, otherwise. So they were of a liberal bent. There was a, there's an inevitable slide into apostasy there. The other end was what the author referred to as fundamentalism. Here he described religious experiences based mainly on, on rules, legalism, social expectations, behavioral modification. Somewhere in the middle of who God really is and how we relate to him, which is not through rules but through grace, but also what he demands of us and how we ought to live, which requires us to understand his law, the truth is found. Here's what Marriott, the author of the book, said in his interview. He said, as you know, deconstruction is the watchword amongst young evangelicals, where they want to pull apart their faith and say, I've been handed this entire package, and it's been called Christianity, but I'm not sure that the entire thing is Christianity. So let me pull apart all the pieces and see which ones I think are viable and the ones that line up with what I think, and then I'll rebuild my faith. Marriott said, I think everyone needs to do that at some point. In fact, we all do. In the old days, the reformers would say, we are semper reformanda. We are always reforming. We're always looking to the Word to see if we align with it. But you notice that the challenges of this newer generation is not alignment with the Word. It's alignment with reason, opinion, feelings, personal experiences. And he said, when it comes to deconstruction, what we see now is people not just taking off the shingles on the roof of the house... They're going right down to the studs, and they even start demolishing the foundation and rebuilding on something that's not Christian. He said, this is going to be our problem for years and years to come. This is where we are. Now, don't be dismayed, but all of what I've said to you is the intro to this text. Because this text speaks to these issues. If you and I are going to endure faithfully in the years to come, the Bible is not silent on these issues. And even this epilogue to a book that challenges us to remain faithful, to endure to the end, to stand firm, speaks to them. And it speaks in these three areas. The first is the necessity of a loving and genuine Christian community. We all need a loving and genuine Christian community. God did not design any of us to flourish or even to function as healthy Christians, independently of others. That's not the way we were made. And consider the analogies here just for a moment. When he talks about the church, he talks about considering those who are hurting. Why should you consider those who are hurting? What's the implication? Because you're part of the body too. Not because, wow, look how bad it is for them, don't you care? No, they're part of you. When your back hurts, don't you care? Doesn't? All of you care? Your whole self care? When your tooth is hurting, don't your feet do something about it as you walk to the dentist? No, it's part of you. This idea of loving Christian community, let brotherly love continue. You've got to have this. What sort of community is he talking about? Is he describing here? He's talking about the kind of community that lives like a family together. This is God's intention. How do we maintain endurance? How do we keep people going? How do, we, how do we know when someone's starting to stray, whether that's moral, or whether it's emotional, or whether it's intellectual, if they're not part of a community? 
What's the purpose of a smaller group of people? One of the things you'll hear say at Calvary a lot, particularly if you come to our membership process, you'll be hearing it more in January as we revisit some of our purposes and intentions and missions and calling, is this. It's great that you're part of a gathering on Sunday morning that's large. This is absolutely necessary to what God intends for us. But it is not sufficient for all that God intends for us. You need to be part of a smaller biblical community of people who know you by name and know your needs. And I would challenge you beyond your small group, beyond your life group, that you have a few people in your life. Maybe it's formally established like a D group. Maybe it's informal, but it's the people that you share your life with and they share your life. They share life with you. Whereby real accountability, loving, godly accountability, a structure in place that keeps people from falling away. Real family people that you care about, people that you reach out to, just like you would a brother or sister who's hurting. It's the kind of community also that displays the gospel to outsiders. Remember I said just a moment ago, we are not on the retreat. At least we ought not be. It feels like we are sometimes. We ought to be on the advance. We ought to display the gospel to outsiders. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, and we discussed this a bit last week on a biblical theology of worship, Our purpose is primary about God. We want to extol God. We want to lift up the name of Christ. We want to revisit and celebrate and praise the virtues of God and our great salvation. It's about Him. And because it's about Him and what He's done for us, the only people who can rightly do that are His people. We are His people, so we are the worshipers. And that's what worship is primarily for. But what we do ought to have some sort of powerful, compelling sense of draw to those who don't know Christ, but not just what we do on Sunday mornings. What do you do with your life? Steve and I were talking about the difference in the mission fields of, say, South Alabama versus Manhattan. And here our norm is just simply invite people to church, right? I mean, just about every you meet either goes to church or has been to church once in their life is not a foreign experience. You know, invite them to church. Show them how much God loves them by inviting them to church. But what do you do with someone who's far from God and is generationally removed from God? Maybe your first step isn't inviting them to church. Maybe it's inviting them to dinner, inviting them them to your house, inviting them to have coffee with you, and beginning to show, display the love of God, the gospel to outsiders. It's the kind of community this passage reminds us always, and Jesus spoke so much about this subject, that remembers the needy, the hurting, and the persecuted around them. And again, not because their situation is so pathetic and so sad that it stirs our hearts. That's not the primary motivation. That's secondary. The motivation is that they are us. In the book of February, we're going to launch into Acts. The fiery formation of the people of God known as the church. And it will become pretty clear pretty early on that the expectations of God for His people in Acts don't look a lot like the practice of God's people today. And one of the expectations is the sharing of resources, the meeting of needs for one another. The people among us, our people, God's people, are not suffering alone. They're not hurting alone. They're not struggling alone. They're people that remember their needs, their hurts, are persecuted. Why? Because they are us. Why do we pray for the persecuted church in places like India or China or North Korea? or wherever it may be, because they are us. Not simply because it's so painful, not simply because our situation is so dire, but because that's us. That's our body. Those are our people there. Those in prison, those hurting, those needy. It's the kind of community that recognizes ultimately that 
This thing that we're talking about, enduring faithfully to the end, not giving up the faith, walking circumspectly, pursuing holiness, knowing the truth and living, I mean, staying the course, imperfectly as it may be, is something we do together. We've got to do this together. Now, this may sound a bit like a soapbox, but I just read these snippets and these comments more and more from people. What do I need a church for? What do I need to go, you know, in this term, which is so overplayed, so beat down, that I would even dare say, I would challenge you, don't, don't even use it anymore because you sound a bit like a moron. When you say, you know, I just don't believe in organized religion. Well, look around. We're not that organized. <laughs> but you know what? God established the church in all of its imperfections. And you know what God thinks of the church? He calls the church the bride of his son. I'll tell you, Jesus values the church. The church is his bride, and he's coming back for his church. And it's the church of Christ that's going to celebrate with the Savior, the bridegroom, forever and forever and forever and forever. That's the wedding supper of the Lamb. I'll tell you, Jesus loves his church. And we are a people. We're in this thing together. So think about this practically for a moment. What do you do when that person that you know and love, that's part of this body, is straying off the course morally. What do you do? You don't do anything if you're just a spectator. You don't do anything if you're just one who comes to the Sunday morning show. But if that's a member of your body, if that's your brother, if that's your sister, well, that changes the equation, doesn't it? What do you do when someone's hurting and, had been, and they've been hurt? How do you work towards healing and reconciliation and restoration? What do you do in these situations? Because we're in this together. You need that Christian community. Number two, you need the loving stability of gospel-centered and God-honoring. And I put in your notes the word marriages because that's focus here. But the bigger picture is families. Families. The loving stability of gospel-centered and God-honoring marriages and families. Because there are some single parents here with a, with a family. And you're part of a bigger family here. And the hub, the hub, listen to what I'm saying. The hub of spiritual formation and development is not the gathered church. It is the family. It's the home. The key for the spiritual health and development of your children is not the children's ministry or the student ministry. It's the home. We are here to support. We are here to resource. We are here to encourage, to promote, to model, to assist, not to replace or supplant. It starts in the home, in that healthy home. And consider this. I mean, again, I know I'm speaking on wide sort of wide-ranging themes here this morning, social themes, moral themes that affect us. Does it surprise you at all in this generation, we see this massive exodus from Christianity. At the same time, we have seen this massive onslaught against the biblical norms and definitions and expectations of marriage and family. Do you think those things are unrelated? Biblical picture of sex and gender, of marriage and family, of home. Where is the one place that the timeless 
purposes of God can be upheld. And by the way, this is not cultural. We're not trying to go back to a Victorian age or a Puritan age. We're trying to maintain a biblical norm that's timeless. It is God who established marriage of one man and one woman forever as long as they live. It's God established the sanctity of a home, the loving, gentle leadership of a father and husband, the gracious, respectful submission of a wife, children who learn to honor and submit to their parents as they're being taught to honor and submit to the great parent, our Heavenly Father. These are the norms of God. So he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And I just circled that word as I was thinking through this text this week. To what degree do you and I honor marriage? I mean, put that thing way up here. How many married people are in the room today? Will you stand, married people? All the married folks in this room, stand up for a moment. Let's hear it for marriage today. Praise God for you. Now you can be seated, but if you've been married for more than 50 years, you stay standing. If you've been married more than 50 years, you stay standing. Now, here's the thing. I want you to look around, especially those of you who are rookies at this, okay? And you're a rookie. Here's what I've decided. Your first three decades of this, you're still a rookie. I'll hit 30 in June, then I'm starting to put some stuff together. Um, It can be done. You can do this. You can do this. The world says that marriage is like a contract. You know, you keep your end, I'll keep mine. God says this is a covenant. It's like a covenant Christ made to you. Christ doesn't leave his bride. Men don't leave. Women don't leave. Be faithful to this. We have to do these things real quickly. We've got to value it. Valuing it means holding it in high esteem. This has got to matter to us. And listen, I'm not talking about, you know, some of you think, well, I'm not married. How does this apply to me? And then you respect and honor marriage. You respect and honor marriage. Single men, watch your conversations with married women. Married women, watch your conversations with men who are not your husband. You've got to honor this. You've got to consider that a sacred thing that God has established. We show our honor of marriage by how we treat people who are married. And we've got to defend biblical marriage. I'm not talking about just, you know, putting stickers on our car or waving signs, but in how we vote and decisions that we make that say we, we defend this. Because we defend this not just because of preference, but our biblical worldview calls us to see this as best for everybody. That's what a biblical worldview does. A biblical worldview recognizes that God's ways are the best ways for everybody, believers and unbelievers alike. How much healthier would our society as a whole be if we had healthy families, healthy marriages? We defend this. But here's the the kicker for us, because we spend a lot more time talking about valuing and defending, I think, than actually practicing biblical marriage. If you're not pursuing purity, you're not practicing biblical marriage. Men, if you're looking at pornography, you're not practicing biblical marriage. If you're unfaithful, you're doing the gravest dishonor to biblical marriage, and not just to marriage, but to God who designed it and created it for your thriving, for your well-being, and for the health of the church. We won't have a healthy church if we have a bunch of unhealthy marriages and families. It's got to start there. And finally, we need this. And this one's huge. We sang about this, and so I, I hate to leave it as the final and not have enough time to develop it. But man, we need this so much. Every one of us needs this. You need the certain confidence in God's love. This confident assurance 
The love of God, and it's displayed in this, He has promised to provide for us, He has promised to be present with us, and you have to hang on to that without doubt. You have to be certain of that. Listen to what He says, it kind of seems like an odd entry into the equation. Keep your life from the free... Life free from the love of money. Wait, wait, we're talking about huge things. Christians doing this together, marriages being healthy. Oh, keep your life free of the love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Why is that addressed there? Because that is symptomatic of someone who doesn't really believe that God is enough, that God will provide for them, that God's going to take care of them. So this person will spend their life striving for things they think will satisfy them, things that they think will take care of their needs, things that they think will protect them from disaster, calamity, hardship, etc. I'm not saying hard work is not valuable. I'm not saying careful planning is not necessary. I'm not saying that um, diligence is not godly. But where is your confident trust? If you love this stuff, then that's where your heart is. Where your treasure is, there your love will be. Your heart will also be. So the idea is this, it's the kind of confidence that frees us from greed and materialism. We're not living for that stuff. Why? Moses didn't. Abraham didn't. Why should you? And Solomon, who once did, in his old age, got wise and stopped doing it. Read Ecclesiastes. You realize the futility of it all. How can you be free of greed and materialism? Do you believe this? I'll never leave you or forsake you. I got you. You're not in this alone. You're not by yourself. You're not finishing, crossing that line without me. And it's also the kind of confidence that frees us from the fear of man. And that's big in the times in which we live, right? Who was the martyr that said, they may kill us, but they cannot harm us? Author of Hebrews says, we can affirm confidently this, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the confidence in God to know He's going to provide, He's going to be present, be faithful. Don't fear man. In Hebrews, the context of those people is persecution. That's not our context yet. But even if it is, we'll persevere together. And we'll remind each other of the worth of Christ. The wealth that will be ours in Christ one day. We'll remind each other and encourage each other and help each other to not quit, to not let go. This is what we're going to do. We're going to keep telling each other this. Lord's my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And we're going to have that confidence together to persevere. Give you this in closing. You may wonder what are some of the answers to this deconversion, deconstruction, according to this author. You know, when I was reading the book, my tendency sometimes to shortcut books is to read the beginning and read the end and then see if what's in the middle is worth it. It's sort of like an Oreo approach. And so I wanted to know before I delve too deeply into his chapters do you have any solutions? The very last couple of paragraphs of the book, he says we need to be doing all that we can to cultivate faith. That's the kind of stuff we've been talking about, right? Building each other's faith, encouraging one another. Today ought to be a faith-building day for you, seeing a young man baptized, singing songs of praise. It's all to build your faith. He narrowed it down to these reasons, and I'll give you just the highlights of what he said. 
He said, we can do this, we can cultivate faith by helping people see that reason is not the ultimate criterion for truth. What I think is not the ultimate measure. That makes sense, right? He goes on to say, we cultivate faith by inspiring people through the Scriptures. So, teaching our people, you, me, our young people, our old people alike, don't measure everything by what you think about it, what you feel about it, or your personal experience regarding it, but measure it by the truth. He said, additionally, we need credibility-enhancing behaviors. That's a sort of a fancy way of saying, do you really do what you believe? I was reading an article this week about heresy. You know, we kick that word around a good bit. People calling each other heretics. Well, he's a heretic. Anybody who says something we don't like or teach someone like he's a heretic. Well, heresy means denying something critical to the faith where if you pull this piece out, it all crumbles down. It no longer holds. That's heresy. This author made a great point. We spend a lot more time today among Christians or people who call themselves Christians challenging each other's heresy. We don't do much time challenging each other's praxis or practice. Jesus spent a lot more time challenging people's practice than he did their belief systems. Are you doing it? Because you do what you believe. So he says credibility-enhancing behavior should be rare components of our life. And then finally, he said what we need are appropriate apologetics that confirm the biblical narrative. So I made a little summary. What do we need to be doing to cultivate the faith? You've got to teach the truth, all the parts, not just the popular parts or the inoffensive parts, teach the truth. Because Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So let's teach that. Let's teach something that's wiser than I am and deeper than I am and smarter than I am. Scripture. Two, you've got to live the truth, right, with authenticity. We see this as a constant component in the stories of those who deconvert. They grew up around people who were, and I use a much simpler uh, verbiage, who were fake. They were frauds. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says, James 1.22. And then you and I have to defend the truth with gentleness, but with confidence. Confident gentleness, defend the truth. 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's where it starts. Is he king of you, the center of you? Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Christ is king, and I know why he is, and I know what I believe about him. God, help me to do it, to share it, to defend it with gentleness, teaching it, living it, defending it. Here's the end of the book of Hebrews, which we'll revisit next week as well, because everything is leading up to this final benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father God, may that be so. Work in us in every way that which is pleasing to you for your everlasting glory and for our great good. I pray you do these things today in the name of Jesus. Amen.